Welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast. This is episode 41. I'm Michelle Dunbar. Mark, Stephen, and I will be talking today about how people break free from addiction and recovery. We are two of the co-authors of the Freedom Model for Addictions, Escape the Treatment, or three. We all three are the co-authors of the Freedom Model for Addictions, Escape the Treatment and Recovery Trap, and the Freedom Model for the Family. Freedom Model offers a completely different approach to addiction and offers a real solution that is individual-centered. We offer two ways to learn the Freedom Model in private one-on-one classes, and that's at our beautiful private St. Jude Retreat, which is open, or also through our at-home Freedom Model private instruction program, which we do via video conference. You can get information about our retreat at SoberForever.net and about our at-home program at LeaveAddictionBehind.com. And I picked a topic today because um, because of an exchange I had on on Facebook, um, where we recently had a rash of within 24 hours we had 40 overdoses in our small, relatively small community in upstate New York, and um, and it made national news. And it was because there was cocaine laced with fentanyl. Um, and anybody who's ever used cocaine knows that if you're not expecting to get an opiate with it, it can be pr- yeah, that's, <laughs> pretty shocking. That's a... Certainly. That's yeah, yeah. Especially one of the most strongest opiates known, right? Yeah. So that's going to be even more deadly yeah, to... A, a, snorting a, a, a person. ball. Yeah, well, they, have, they certainly don't have uh, any kind of tolerance. tolerance that's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. It's really scary and... And, um, and one person made a comment that I, I, it's hard to offend me, but I was like offended for everyone. And he was like, well, junkies are going to do what junkies do. And I was like, wow. Okay. (laughs) I mean, uh, I mean that, that is, uh, pretty awful, pretty awful. Yeah. People who say awful things like that, you just have to not take them seriously. I mean, I really, you know, obviously if somebody's at home and their father is saying that or whatever, that's awful. Try to get away Mm -hmm. from that person. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, um, just to anybody listening, when you see those comments online, ignore them. Yeah. Yeah. Don't even interact. They're dummies. With those. They're, Th- they, those are the dummies. Those are not the kind of people that are engaged right. in any kind That's of right. a solution. That's for damn exactly. sure. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's right. Well, what it, what it made me think about was um, there's a there's a false dichotomy that exists, and well, there's a couple couple myths to debunk here, and one is, you know, I started thinking of well, there's the stigma that everybody talks about, right? Um, and, and the whole idea of the disease theory, if you talk to people who, who are proponents of the disease theory, one thing they say is, well, it reduces stigma so that people will go get help when they need help. They'll go into treatment. And, um, and I, I don't think that's true, by the way, um, because it doesn't reduce stigma at all. The, if anything, what we found is the addiction disease theory increases stigma because once you get that label yeah you're saddled with a disability for the rest of your life you're yeah. a ticking time bomb and and it's in in from the public's perception it's an ugly ugly disability yeah that that uh they disagree with and they don't know how to handle it frightens people um being around quote unquote a junkie right right that's, that's the whole point the, the, he has a disease um, that's just not helpful. The worst part about it is it's not true. It's not true at all. You know, so you have a stigma based on a on a lie. 
Right. Well, the problem is what I've always said is the stigma exists on substance use itself. And anybody who would use substances, in some cases at all, and anybody who would use them heavily and regularly, um, that's where the stigma exists. And that's just cultural. Yeah. Can I talk about this? So when you first get this idea, when you first hear it that you're diseased, right? Maybe you never thought of yourself that way. And then somebody comes along maybe at your first treatment center or you get a DWI and you're stuck in some outpatient clinic or something because the law put you there, whatever. And you get and you get saddled with this idea of a disease. There's a bit of comfort in it at first. Yeah, there is. A- at first you're like, oh, there's an explanation for why I it's did not what my fault. I did. Yeah, it's not my fault, right? Yeah. And and depending on the severity of your habit, how how big a part of how big it is in your life, um, there might be, oh, okay. There's an explanation for this. And when deep down inside, you know you do it because you like it, but, but suddenly you have an excuse, so there's an attraction. But the problem is, is that that wears thin with everybody involved pretty sure does. quick. So whatever lack of stigma or, or whatever the amount of stigma that is reduced by that concept it's more than made up for later oh, down yeah. the line. Yeah, and let's <clears throat> let's be clear about that. When you're in when you're in a situation where you're the person with a substance use problem, and um, you go to rehab, and now you're presented with this, you have a disease thing, and everybody's pushing you. Admit this. Mom and dad are saying go along with the program, or right. the husband or wife. Yeah, it's incentivized. Um, it is a comforting excuse at that point, right? And I don't think it ever actually takes away stigma. Never. You know, in any way. But I think with mom and dad, right, with the um, husband or wife, it, it serves as an excuse. But there's been polls on this. And one of the most important ones, um, they did... They did, 19, I think it was 1996 and 2006. I listed this one in uh, the brain disease chapter in the book. Yes. I might be getting the, the years it's and the details. B. Yeah, the, I might be getting the years and the details a little wrong. I don't have it memorized, right? But that was it was a crucial 10-year period in between when the, the brain disease model specifically became extremely popular. And um, they poll people on what do you think about, you know, well, when we say that people with schizophrenia and people with addiction have a brain disease, they, they looked at both those things because those are the thing, big things being pushed as brain disease at a time, at the, at the time. And they ask people questions like, would you want this person to marry into your family? Mm. You know, would you, you know, would you be all right with them marrying into your family? Would you be all right with working next to them, employing them? They ask them these kind of questions. Would you want them as a neighbor? And um, they found that belief in the disease model didn't affect those questions at all. Wow. Right? People didn't want, you know, for example, a guy who, you know, has the disease of addiction to be to marry their daughter. Right. Right? Because why would you? Because like you said before, it's the guy's a ticking time bomb. Mm-hmm. That's what I know. I've been yep. told he has this disease yeah. Yeah. that will make him weak and cause him to relapse at any point. I don't care if he's not using right now. Right? 
Um, <clears throat> then the other thing was over that 10 years, belief in the concept grew and stigma did not go down overall within the population. And um, another thing was that it grew in uh, in some of those questions. Oh, yeah, you course. know, it didn't go down, it grew in some categories. So those are real world measurements of stigma. Would you want this guy to marry your daughter? Right, right. right. You know? So, so the question becomes, so they come out with this idea in the early 50s that uh, they declared a disease, the AMA. And the question is, why? Right? The stigma thing has always been the narrative as to why they they switched up this idea sure. from choice to disease. And so why do you guys think that they did that? Why, why they switched it to the disease? Well, that yeah. was for insurance money. So it was money. It's follow the money. Yeah, it, it almost always is. So you have a red herring called uh, reducing stigma. When yeah. the reality is nobody wants to say, hey, we're going to saddle you with a false disease with no evidence uh, because we want insurance payments. Yeah. Who's going to say that publicly? Right. Know? Certainly yeah. not the insurance company, not the not the, the rehab system, not the detox, none of them. But that's the reality of what happened. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna read from an article. It's from 2015 in ASAM, American Society of Addiction Medicine, and it says patients with addiction need treatment, not stigma. Mm, stigma. So here's how they, here's how they start it. It says, "Junkie, stoner, crackhead." We've all heard the terms used to describe those individuals who struggle with drug addiction. These words are dismissive and disdainful. They reflect a moral judgment that is a relic of a bygone era when our understanding of addiction was limited was limited (laughs) when many thought that addiction was some sort of moral failing and should be a source of shame we need to change the national discussion put simply individuals with substance use disorders are our patients who need treatment scientific progress hashtag science has helped us understand (laughs) oh i'm being a little (laughs) trite has helped us understand that addiction also referred to as substance use disorder is a chronic disease of the brain it is a disease that can be treated and treated successfully. Now, their, their definition of successfully and mine are two different things yeah. completely. Yeah. No one chooses to develop the, this disease. Instead, a combination of genetic predisposition and environmental stimulus analogous to other chronic diseases like diabetes and hypertension. And if you want to know why it's not the same as diabetes and hypertension, you can look at Appendix C in our book. Yeah. It's not even remotely close can result in physical changes to the brain's circuitry, which lead to tolerance, cravings, and the characteristic compulsive and destructive behaviors of addiction that are such a large public health burden for our All right, there, there's so much so wrong. Much we're we're yeah. all chomping at the bit. I know, I am. <laughs> I know. There's so much wrong this there. This is ASAM, by the way. So they're... they're they're the uh, they're they're the experts on addiction. American medicine. Society of Addiction Medicine. Yes. Can I? I the first wrong thing though. I I need to jump in. I with know mine, you do. I know you do. Is that there has never been? <coughs> sorry. Ne- there never was this concept of addiction as a moral failing. Right. I mean, never. Right from the beginning. So if you look back through history. No idea even of addiction, of, well, those people there, they can't stop themselves. That was, you know, because they're defective or whatever. That never existed until like 1800, 
when Benjamin Rush, yes. a doctor, um, the temperance movement, and it came out and said, "There's this. I don't know what he called it at first, right? Inebriety or yeah, whatever." But started. I mean, saying, he coined the term alcoholism eventually. Yeah. Oh, he did coin he alcoholism. Did. Yeah, and then it so, died away, and then it came back. But came back. but so from the very get go. When the entire concept of addiction was invented, it was called a disease. Right from the beginning. Yeah. Right from the absolute yes. beginning. And if you look at the 1800s and that whole temperance movement, they loved people with drinking problems. They loved pulling them in and trying to help them. They did not stigmatize them. If you, if you read about That's it, right. they stigmatized the moderate drinkers. <laughs> they absolutely yeah, yeah. stigmatized. Yes. It was a religious moderate. movement. It was yeah. 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 So and this comes up constantly that oh, in the past we called everybody immoral, you know, and yeah, no. and I've been reading all the history on it. It it, it never existed. Yeah, even it's a it's that that's just bullshit completely. Yeah. It is bullshit because even in the Bible, if I've read the Bible cover to cover a few times and um there's very few references to alcohol, you know, there's some uh, being being a purveyor of evil, so to speak, and some in Proverbs and some little vignettes throughout. But even in the New Testament, one of the first miracles that Jesus does, which is the basis of like every modern Christian religion, right, is him producing more wine and at a wedding, sa a saving the best wine, creating the best wine. <laughs> Not only they had wine but he created the best wine so the yeah. whole it's literally the first miracle in in the new testament so so this idea and and it's central throughout the catholic religion drinking wine and so this idea that it was a moral failing or deeply held idea that it was really has never been the case and and here's the irony throughout throughout all the dark ages who held um all the stills who created the booze which was food in those days was the monks you know right. the, the religious governments held the rights to creating booze mm -hmm. for the people it was almost a taxed item you know it's the way it was currency and a healthy currency the good creature of god they called it yeah. in, in colonial america so this idea that that it was a moral failing was kind of a rare idea that only, like Steve said, came on later. It it really came out as a boogeyman. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. You know, For control. It's almost like where you know these politicians always come out and they say so and so supports uh, trickle down economics. And if you go back in history, Thomas Sowell went through this. You go back, and there was never a politician who said, "I am for trickle down economics," and here is how it works. <laughs> nobody, nobody has, ever said that. Nobody has ever said that, right? <laughs> Some people have been drawn into defending it, and that's how these debates work, right? right? Because right. so now, if you like, the most, the biggest way, so the way you get people to defend trickle ec down economics is to accuse them of that and oppose that to your economics right and <laughs> right. it's the same thing with this disease thing it's like 
there's us, the people that are nice and we think it's a disease. That's right. And there's the haters who think it's moral. You think it's moral. It's not moral. It's not moral. It's not moral. You're going to get somebody to come along and say, no, it is moral. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. If You if create. You, you create yeah. it. It's a, it's a completely false thing. It, it, it's so upsetting to me. <laughs> it's a, listen, listen, it's, it's, it's upsetting to me. I, I always dread when somebody asks me what I do. If I've just met them and maybe we got a rapport going, they're like, oh, what do you do? And and so then I'm like, it, there was a time when I would avoid talking about it altogether because I just I just didn't want to explain it because the minute I start explaining what I do, they're like, oh, you're a counselor at a rehab. Yeah, I get that too. You know, and I'm like, nope, nope, I'm I'm not any of those things. And yeah. then I and then I feel the need to go into my spiel, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. and and talk about how addiction isn't a disease. And and now if there's somebody that's in the addiction disease camp, then I'm automatically if I say. You know, substance use is always a voluntary chosen behavior. People do it for reasons. Um, they automatically say, oh, so you think people are weak. You think they're immoral. You think they're bad. And I'm like, why does it have to be one or the other? Yeah. It, it, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can yeah. be neither of those things. Yeah, it can be a whole host of gray areas and, and personal reasons why people use. And, exactly. And you don't know what the person's going through. You don't know their beliefs. You don't know anything. You know, yeah. a person is autonomous and their life is totally their own. It's so crazy to just throw people in two camps like well, that. It, what I do a lot of times is I go, so you think people that eat cupcakes are bad. They're immoral, right? They're bad people. Like, no, that's ridiculous. I'm like, then why would you say somebody that drinks beer is immoral? Why would you say somebody that, that uses heroin is immoral? Well, you know what's funny is they conflate the the actions of a few under the influence, so to speak, that, that behave poorly, right? Or or they hear the story of the, the guy who got drunk and killed a family. Right. Right. And those things are awful. I get it. They're tragic. Sure. They're awful. Um and but they're not the actions of the majority of people that drink even heavily so right. so it's you're you're really cherry picking and then you you use that cherry pick data and then make it fit your narrative which is this black and white scenario which really is about control yes. it's about you're bad you're weak and then there's somebody whenever that argument exists it's because there's somebody who believes they have an answer and benefits from the answer they're going to provide a service, all right, with this population that is downtrodden. And, uh, and so we make victims of people. That's what we do. We're good at it in America. We're phenomenally yeah, we're... good at taking perfectly healthy human beings that have a bad habit that might be kicking their ass <laughs> and making them into diseased victims, you know, and keeping them in that place. It's sad. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think um, it really is a control thing. Yeah. It really like you is. Said, yes. And it is. <clears throat> we need to not forget that. That the disease model justifies forcibly treating right. yes. people. That's right. right? That's what it does. This is what they do in Massachusetts. This is what they're doing in a lot of they states. Do in Florida. Yeah. Uh, if somebody thinks you have a substance use problem, they can go to a court and the, they'll tell the judge you drink too much and uh, they're scared for you and whatever case they make. And. Um, the judge issues an order for you to go turn yourself into a treatment center, which in Massachusetts, those are in former prisons. They're literally in former prisons, the ones that they use. And um, if you don't go, 
Like, if you don't, if you said, no, I'm not going, you don't show up when they tell you to go, they can issue a warrant for you. And police can come pick you up and put you in handcuffs. And the politicians who devise this say, in our state, we're going to be compassionate and treat yeah. addiction as a disease rather than, and in this case, they say rather than a crime. A crime. But we're going to lock you up. <laughs> but we're going to lock you up in a prison. <laughs> Right. And so uh, against that's your will. That's behind the disease model. Right. Yes. And also there's incentives for everybody to believe in this. Um, there's I've talked to wives that say, well, I, I can't imagine thinking that my husband's drinking is a choice because then I'd have to hate him. Right. So right. it's attractive to her. It's attractive to parents. Um, it's black and white. It's black and white. And you get to say, look, you have this mental illness you think you want to drink. You think you want to take these drugs, but that's the disease talking. So I therefore have the right, and you have to agree right. to tell you to stop because this is a disease. You don't get it, right? And it, so it's all a coercive play. And um, it's a sham. So I think that, first of all, leads to us treating people with substance use problems worse. First Absolutely. of all, right? Because, like you said, coercion and control. But I think, second of all, you know, let's just go back. It doesn't really get rid of the stigma. So, you know, I don't know. I, I don't find any benefit to this. The promise is always that there's a benefit. The promise is always in 19, well, in 18, whatever, it was, we're being compassionate now. Y you know, in, in 1935, it was, we're yes. being compassionate now. It, we're recognizing this disease. In 2007, ASAM, we're being compassionate you know, it's, it's like this. We all this dark history. Now this is the point. We know now it's a disease. They keep saying it again and again and again, and it, it, it's actually infuriating if you ever look at the history. How often these things have been said? Well, Same argument. What's funny is when Michelle came up with the topic, right? Mm -hmm. She was. We were talking about it in my office just an hour ago, and I said, you know, the whole stigma thing has always been kind of a mystery to me. Not that I don't understand it, but I, I, I don't like talking about it because it's so ridiculous. I, it, what you're, to your point, it doesn't get rid of it. So it's a very weird thing to me. Mm -hmm. I grew up in treatment, literally constantly being immersed in it by my siblings and by my mother and around it, in it. Then I was in the system. And this, this idea of destigmatizing an addiction has been floated in front of me my whole life. And all I saw it do was destroy my family. Right. Yeah. It destroyed my family within my family. These are people that actually love each other, actually are family. And by the time everybody was done with rehab, nobody talked to anybody, each other for years. It, yeah. it literally took the fabric of my family. It didn't destigmatize. It made us point fingers and hate each other. That's exactly and what quietly it judge and talk behind. Our, oh, Johnny, he's got the problem. You know, he's so guilt ridden. He's got mental illness. This one's got depression. This, and and you know, he's got the disease now. We're keeping a chair ready for you and AA right oh, here, Mark. Yeah. That was the common one with you, Michelle. Mm -hmm. You know, so there was no destigmatizing. No, scenario. we were stigmatized before we started drinking. It's nuts. It's nuts. <laughs> so so what does this this image do 
is it corrals people into treatment. When you look at how the system works, Steve hit the point, and, and, and certainly you and I lived it, Michelle. Yeah. You know, you were a little girl, and what did, what did people say to you? They told me that, that if I ever touched alcohol or a drug, that I, w- I would become addicted immediately. And they said the identical thing to me, and the very first time I get drunk on my 12th birthday, I have a, I have a great experience coupled with a bad experience that whole night, which is pretty common when pretty you're common. first drunk at 12. That's right, yes. 12. I was and, 12 when I first got drunk. And, but I framed it as I'm addicted, stigma. Yes. Right? That's that's the stigma. Oh, every Literally. time I drink, I'm going to be out of control. Yep. And and then I behaved poorly because I was taught how to do that. Yep. And then my family ripped on me. And, and I could hear the voices in the background. Oh, oh Mark, yeah. Mark's got the disease, too. You know, it's kicking in his German genetics. And, right. And, and all <laughs> I the was bullshit. Irish. <laughs> yeah. It's so depressing, though. Because yeah. for the next six years, my life was a total travesty. And it almost killed me. Yeah. You know? So it didn't, this disease thing that I was saddled with was crushing. Yeah. I mean, it was crushing. Well, so. Yeah. Well, this is, this is one of the things this article talks about. It talks about a bunch of different stuff. And it says, we must do a better job with prevention. This includes intervening early with teens uh, who initiate alcohol and or marijuana, as well as efforts to encourage safe storage and disposal, whatever that has to do with anything. Unused medications increase the risk of non-medical use by adolescents who live in the home and by their friends, who, by the way, were taught that in a Partnership for Drug-Free America ad drugs, campaign. How to steal drugs. Yeah. You don't have to go to the corner you know, dealer now. You can get them out of mom and dad's medicine cabinet my children made me watch that commercial when they were like 12 or that little ad thing i thought oh that's so helpful thank you partnership for drug free america Uh, (laughs) unused medication also can be ingested by young children who are curious so it goes on to say so so we're not only did we get it in our home but now our kids are getting it in the schools oh i i can't i won't let any of my children i want to i want to tell the public out there that you should never allow your children to be partake in those programs no never i i was walking down the hallway in my grade school my son's grade school when he was in grade school and and they had all these posters they had the kids make posters about how you're susceptible to depression what what all the different disorders they had to list out the disorders and all this stuff and i'm thinking why for god's sake why talk about that yes you, you inspired me right Yep. There's a book called Strange Contagion, and it's about Cupertino, I think Cupertino, California, right? It's a very wealthy town. Apple is based there. Other tech companies, it's right near San Francisco. They had um, one kid walk out onto the tracks of the commuter train and uh, right in front of it, stepped in front of a train and killed himself. Oh, God. So the school launches a massive suicide, suicide. campaign oh. and say watch out if you're depressed you move. might end up committing suicide the worst thing you could do and um so now within the next two years or year they get Arrest. six more i think it was six mm-hmm. yeah at least of the same exact suicide and um there's people that look at these things and they say like this is what this is a what do they call it? a social contagion right right you never would have had the, you know, like most people wouldn't think, oh, I'm sad and I'm depressed and therefore I'll kill, I myself, kill myself, right? right? 
But the more you say, hey, watch out if you get sad, you'll probably kill yourself. <laughs> right. The greater the right. idea it right. becomes. It's the same right. thing has happened with eating disorders. When you had highly publicized eating disorders, they were followed by explosions in eating disorders. The same with the cutting. We remember yes. we had like a oh, rash yes. of that coming yes. to the retreat. Yes. You know, and Whatever so is popularized. So mm-hmm. like the question is, you know, how do you how do you talk about problems in a way that you don't create more of them? Right. How do you address problems without creating more of them? I don't know, but I know that when people people who know better, scientists, right? Even like Volkow has implicitly said, well, look, you know, maybe it's a disease, maybe it's not, but the technical definition, you know, I don't know, I'm not giving an exact quote here, but I was just reading something to that effect where she basically is like, yeah, maybe the disease is a little shaky, but we need to do this for stigma. So you're talking about scientists that know better and and Les- and, Alan, and Alan Leshner, who preceded her, wrote it, and I put it in that book, yes, in Appendix B, right? And he basically says, like, look, hey, let's just say it's a disease so we can get people tr- the treatment they need. Yes. As he's and, arguing and that it's paid for, and yes. You know, so these are scientists who should know better, and they're saying, let's all pretend this disease exists. So I don't know what the best conversation is to have, but I can say I don't think that falsehoods ever help well I, I think the way you handle that is having kids who have grown up and are pretty darn well adjusted um and they had their their struggles with drinking and drugging and having their fun and all that and they got through it and they came out the other side i think it's exactly what you just did which is talk about the falsity of what people are saying and give examples. Kids are really smart. They they like these conversations. You could have them listen to this podcast so that when they're confronted at school with some bullshit, some nonsense about susceptibility to addiction, they can raise their hand and and you know uh, critique the teacher and critique the idea. Um, just as long as they know both sides of the fence. My kids, I told them the truth. Yeah. I told me them too. the truth, and I also told them. All the stories about my drinking and drugging, and it's funny, I'd be talking and I'd have somebody over at the house and they'd be like, you, you tell your kids about all that. <laughs> and I go, of course I do. You know, they're not dumb and it's okay. It's not like because I went out and did it, they're going to. You know, the whole point is to show them that I made mistakes and, 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 uh, and I moved on from it. And that, that example is powerful. So if you're listening to this, it's okay to talk about this, to, to debate all of it publicly and really question everything that you hear. The thing that's the hardest for me in this topic is when I hear susceptibility. And you'll hear it throughout the podcast that we've done when I, I bring this up. It drives me crazy, this idea that some people are, because of social factors, because of who they are, where they yeah. grow up. Their genetics. Yeah. And we need to increase their resilience yes yes we need to addiction proof their life (laughs) yeah like it's something that you inject in yeah yeah it's it's like a vaccination or something and the the disease of addiction is like a virus that's right right. they're susceptible some people are more susceptible to this virus than others right yeah that that is very insulting and i think the the conversations to have um you know there's that guy he's a basketball player something's going around saying just one time, just one. Yeah, you know, he said that don't his, say that. That, that sneaking a beer from 
one of his dad's beers when he was 12 is the reason he became a heroin user and lost his basketball career or whatever right. the case is. And he goes around to cool school saying this. And, you know, I think the truth is um, a lot of people party hard and then they, they, they maybe leave it later than they would have in hindsight and can say, you know, I think I wasted a few extra years doing that. And I think that's the danger is you get caught. For somebody to tell that story, nobody wants to hear that. It's not nobody, sensational. People don't want to hear that. They, they don't want to hear that you didn't overdose from drugs, that you just did it too much and and wish that you had stopped sooner so you'd have a little more money and be a little further along in your career and own the house yeah. and whatever else has happened. Nobody wants to hear that. But those are the kind of stories that need to get told, right? And the stories that need to get told are about people's honest reasons for using. I really thought drugs were fun, you yep. know? Right. And in going so hard on that kind of fun, I kind of forgot about all the other fun that exists in life, right? That's a very true thing for many people to say, but that you can't say within the recovery context, within the idea that you had an, a disease. You can't say, I thought they were really f fun and forgot about the other fun. It's that I thought they were really fun and I didn't realize they would addict me. Yeah. Right. You know yeah, what I mean? And, and something happened. Right? Yeah. Or to say, you know what? I thought that this stuff really helped me through depression. And this and that. And, you know, yeah. I did it and just kept getting more and more depressed. So I don't think it was really helping. And um, and so I would hope that you kids never believe that lie. That yeah, that's exactly that's right. Drinking that is going to help go. you through depression and stress. When, like, the, the kids need the reality. People need the reality. But we've gotten way away from stigma well, now. It's okay. Because, okay. look, at, it's, it's, well, we'll go back to stigma. I was, uh, I was up at our retreat in Wells. And I had the boys were with me. I think yours. I think Austin, Stephen, and Christopher were there, and maybe Eric. And mm -hmm. and I was visiting, I think, with Danielle, and because it, it was a woman's house at the time, and one of the women comes running into me, and she's really upset. I mean, like, she was fit to be tied, <laughs> and and she pulls me aside. And she goes, "What do you tell your sons about us?" And I'm like, "What? What?" And she goes. It was Christopher who was like maybe six or seven at the time. <laughs> Christopher is the one who edits these, and <laughs> so he's twenty-one now. And um, and and she said, she goes, he just came out to the patio and he pointed at each one of us and he goes, "You're on drugs. You're on drugs. You're on drugs, and you're on drugs." Oh my god! And 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 I was like, oh my god, why would he say that? And I go, what were you doing? And she goes, nothing. We were just talking. I go. Were you smoking? <laughs> and she goes, well, yeah, we were out there smoking. And I go, my guess is he learned that cigarettes are a gateway drug. Yeah, yeah. That's what he learned. And I talked to him about it later. And I go, why would you say that to them? He goes, they were smoking, mommy. And that leads to hard drugs. <laughs> and I at went, six. At six or seven. He was very wow. young. He goes, we just learned that. Yeah. And disgusting. I was horrified. I was like. Well, that's total crap, and you have to let me know every time you learn something about that. Yeah. Because I will take care of it. And um, so, so talk about. I mean, if you want it, my son had stigmatized 
smoking cigarettes. He equated that with booting heroin. Oh, I have to deal with that with the kids. The, the anti-smoking. Not that booting heroin is bad. No, Wait a no. minute. Let me just qualify yeah. that. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. But but he. But was, it is the biggest taboo. It is the biggest drugs. taboo. Right. Right. And, it's the target. Yeah. It's the target drug. So so he was told that it's it's. That people that smoke cigarettes, that cigarettes are going to... Now, I smoked my first cigarette at about seven years old. Because mm-hmm. my dad smoked and we would steal them. And mm-hmm. that's what you did when you were a kid. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm like, I said, well, that, that won't happen. You, you, they, th- Things don't hook you. They don't hook you and make you go to more things. It, that's not the way that works. It, the, the anti-smoking thing is so so driven into, into kids. It's unbelievable. And it does. They go right in from that... And they equate that to pot, then to, you know, and alcohol, then to heroin. I mean, it's, yeah, it's this bizarre, bizarre connection that they make. Um, and they learn it from a young age. They think that yeah. it's reality. I love what Carl Hart said. Do you remember what Carl Hart said when he was speaking in front of, uh, was it Congress? He was uh-huh. speaking in front yeah, of Congress. I forget, though. He, he talked say? about how uh, Barack Obama admitted to smoking pot. And he goes, so I suppose pot is a gateway drug to the presidency? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's perfect correlation. Yeah. yeah. It was perfect. Um, <laughs> I, I think for anybody who's listening who has a problem, and if they're worried about the stigma, you know, first of all, when you do have these problems... Uh, don't run around and tell everybody I'm an addict or an alcoholic. Yeah, let that go. Don't don't bring that upon yourself. yourself. Um, Maybe you've already been labeled. I don't know. Right? But um, don't don't let the stigma hurt you. And you don't have to let it hurt. I mean, obviously if there's somebody who won't hire you because it because of they know of your it's past. It's on or your something, record, right? You then, were diagnosed. You went to rehab. Whatever. Then okay, right? But there are plenty of people that will. You know, um, I had a massive, massive criminal record, and I got several jobs. Yep. <laughs> you know, so like yeah. um, that that can happen, um, but uh, you need a forgiving attitude about humanity, right? Yeah. And that is that life, we come into this world, you know, knowing nothing, and we go through it, trying to be happy, learning, figuring out the choices that will make us happier, and moving on to those. And sometimes we stick with some choices longer than they're useful to us. Right. You know, and cause some trouble, maybe. Yeah. Right? But we move on from that. And people do this in all arenas in life. And anybody who thinks anybody's not supposed to have, people aren't supposed to have a track record of failures, um, those are the little safe, lifeless people that will settle into a job right out of college, get a little house and sit there like boring, sad sacks for the rest of their life, never take a risk or do anything. You know, if there's anybody that has a track record of mistakes, but they'll get to 70 and they'll say, why didn't I ever take those chances that I wanted? The biggest Mm -hmm. mistake they made was not making mistakes. And if you see successful people who have invented things, who have created giant businesses, you will see a track record of failures and mistakes. It's okay if you regret what you've done. It doesn't mean 
that you're going to be, that you are bad, first of all, you're human. It doesn't mean that you're destined to keep making those mistakes. This is just life. And give yourself a break and allow yourself to have made some mistakes. I think that I'm better for every mistake I've made. Me too. That's right. Even though I regret some of them. Yep. And and one last thing, if, if you can view your quote-unquote addiction as, or the choice to uh, continue heavy use, moderate, abstain, as no different than any other choice in your life, then you will know freedom. But if you give it more weight than it deserves, if you think it's a disease, if you think you're powerless, if you think that it you can't stop, then you've bought into an idea that's man-made. It's, it's a man-made idea. It was made up, you know, so let that go. And if you can't let that go and you're confused about it and you really feel confounded by this whole drinking and drugging thing in your life, read the Freedom Model. We give the book away for free. There's no excuse for you not to know the information now. That's right. That's right. Uh, stigma turned on yourself is shame, and it gets in the way of, of figuring out how you can be happier. It just really gets in the way. That's a good way of putting it. So, all right. Well, I think we we, we really, we, 40 minutes went by really fast. <laughs> um, thank you so much for listening today. If you or someone you know is seeking help for a substance use problem or other habitual behavior, or you want help in breaking free and moving past recovery as well, the idea of perpetual recovery, you can reach us at 888-424-2626 or through our websites, thefreedommodel.org leaveaddictionbehind.com and soberforever.net at thefreedommodel.org we have a bunch of free resources and information including our book you can get our full books The Freedom Model for Addictions and The Freedom Model for for the Family at thefreedommodel.org forward slash products Um, use coupon code freedom100 for the Freedom Model for Addictions and family100 for the Freedom Model for the Family Um, at checkout you put those coupon codes in you'll get them for free um, you can also buy our book in paperback form, all of our books in paperback form on Amazon. Um, and if you have questions, you can email us at info at thefreedommodel.org. You can follow us on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our Freedom Model YouTube channel. We have three Facebook groups that we started and we admin for people to discuss their experiences breaking free from addiction and recovery. They are the Freedom Model. Moving Beyond Addiction, or I think it's called the Freedom Model Group now. Um, moving Beyond Addiction and Recovery and Families Moving Beyond Addiction and Recovery. And there are some great leaving AA and D programming groups as well on Facebook. From everyone here at the St. Jude Retreat and the Freedom Model, we wish you well. And also, we always recommend for anybody that needs detox, if you're, oh, yes. you physically need detox and you're coming off of benzodiazepines, alcohol, and you have delirium tremens or any symptoms, uh, go to gallusdetox.com. We partnered with them. They're the best detox in the country. That's gallus, that's G-A-L-L-U-S, detox.com. And they're in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Denver, Colorado. Yes, and that's... Oh, and we are still offering a free... Oh, this is big. Yeah, free 30-minute, like class over Zoom or FaceTime or Skype. Um, So you can go to leaveaddictionbehind.com and put your name and contact information in the the contact form there. And uh, Danny White, who is the director of our private instruction program, will be contacting you to set that up. So thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Bye.